Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your word. And we pray that you would imprint it upon our hearts and you cause it to rest upon our hearts. For where your word is, there your spirit is active. And make your spirit to be active in us and through us and guide us ever nearer to yourself, O Lord, that we would know the fullness of your blessings and your grace always. We ask this all through Christ our Lord. Amen. Pour into our hearts that most excellent gift of charity. The true bond of peace and of all virtues. Without which whoever lives is counted dead before you. The words of our collect of the day for this week. Being reminded that love is at the foundation of our work, of our deeds, of our actions. But where does that love come from? Where does that love originate ultimately? I think there are aspects of our parable that we hear today from Jesus that make us think about that deeply as we consider the steward, as we consider the master, as we look at this very difficult parable. And most commentators agree this is, might be the most difficult parable Jesus ever gave to us because at the end you hear the master of the house praising the steward who was wasting his possessions and who had then gone behind his back and marked down everyone's debts. And yet he praised him. And so people have always kind of scratched their heads at this parable, wondering like, wow, what is going on in this parable? Why is Jesus speaking of praises for the steward? And I think it's because we are too quick to look at the word dishonest in reference to the steward and not to consider who the master is. Who does the master represent ultimately in this passage? With all of Jesus' parables, there's always some type of parallel between different people. Typically, this central character, like in chapter 15 so often, especially with the prodigal son, which was the parable Jesus just told right before this because... That's how it continues. He told that parable and then immediately verse 1 of 16 says, and he said to the disciples, he continues telling parables to the people. That there the prodigal son represents the individual persons who have turned from God, who have run from God. And that ultimately the father stands in place of God himself, ready and willing to receive the son back to himself regardless of the shame that he brings with him. Likewise here, we must consider who the people are in this story. That we must recognize that the steward, of course, is a picture of all of us, of each of us in one way or another, and how we have not done that which is right with what has been given to us, with what we have been put in charge of. And that ultimately the master points us toward God himself. And we get there by recognizing how the master responds to everything the steward does. How does the master respond? Does he throw him in jail? Does he put him in debtor's prison? Does he sell him off as a slave for wasting his possessions and then literally stealing from him at the end? No. It's because the steward's actions aren't 
based on not knowing who the master is. The steward has been given a glimpse of the master by how the master treated him. And because of that glimpse, the steward does what he does. He discovers that the master has a generous nature. He discovers that the master is a merciful man. And likewise for us, when we realize how generous the master truly is, we must then fall upon that generosity whenever we are brought down by our very sin. The master's generous nature is what we must fall upon at the end. When our sin overtakes us, when our sin comes upon us, when we are confronted with that sin, it is only by the master's generous nature that we will continue forward. And that's where we begin with this parable. We begin with the master's confrontation of the steward. The master's confrontation is simple. There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought against him that this man was wasting his possessions. And so the master, who is probably a landowner, he owns a large amount of land, and he has debtors, and he has renters upon that land, and because of all this financial transaction that's happening, he has a steward. He has someone who's in charge of the financial books, the accounting books. But then other people in the community are coming to the master and saying, yo, this guy, Joe here, you can't trust him. He's being wasteful. He is not doing what he is supposed to be doing. That word right there, wasteful, that's the same word that describes what the prodigal son did, that he wasted and squandered the property that he had been given from his father in reckless living. And so there's a, there's a verbal connection here. The prodigal son was squandering what he had. Here, the steward is being wasteful. He's not using it the way it's supposed to be. He's using it for himself and not for the master and his debtors. And so the master calls him in. And he says, what is this that I hear about you? It's a great little question, isn't it? He doesn't confront the steward with what he has heard. He simply says, steward, what is this I've been hearing about you? He's trying to put the steward in a position to fess up, to talk about, to try to get him into a corner, to cause him to say something that would make him admit his guilt. But the steward knows this game and he doesn't answer. He is quiet and so the master just simply says, well, turn in the account of your, of your work. Turn in the account of your management. Bring me the books, for you are no longer manager. The master confronted him with the reality of what he was doing wrong. The steward didn't say anything because he knew he had not been a faithful servant. He knew he was being wasteful. And so why should he try to defend himself? He was ready to receive whatever the master was going to hand to him, whether it be being sold into slavery, whether it was going to jail, whether it was being taken out in the streets and shamed before the community for being the wasteful man that he was. But the master didn't do any of that. He just sent him off and said, go get the books. Bring them here. You're no longer manager. No more. Bring me the books. That is the sum total of master's confrontation here. He doesn't do anything that he has the right to do except ask for the books. After that confrontation with the master, the steward goes off and he has a consideration. The steward's consideration is thinking to himself, what am I going to do? The master's taken away the job. He's taken the management from me. I'm not the steward anymore. What can I possibly do now? 
I'm too weak to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. So he's caught. He has an inner monologue, which isn't unusual in Jesus' parables. Again, the same thing with the prodigal son. He did the same thing when he reached his lowest point. He had his inner monologue of, I know what I'm going to do. I'll go back and say this to my father. I'll go back and do this. I'll go back and be a slave and a servant to my father. He came up with a plan to earn his way back to the father. And just like that, the steward is doing the same thing. He's considering his options. He can't dig. He can't go do manual labor. He can't do any of that stuff. He won't beg. He's not going to go be a poor beggar because he knows once the community finds out about his wastefulness, no one will hire him. Everyone will look at him and say, you are not getting anywhere near my finances. You might not be a crazy embezzler, but you're not going to invest my money. You're not going to spend my money wisely. So you're not coming near my finances. And so he knows that he will not be accepted by anyone on his own. But then he figures something out. He says, I know what I can do. I know what I will do to get into people's houses so that people will receive me so that I can be hired out and work for other people in the same kind of capacity. He thinks he's figured it out by his own wits, but there's something underneath the surface that I will get to near the end that I will point out that is happening throughout a thread, throughout this steward's consideration after the confrontation. And so his consideration is then to go forward with this plan. And he summons the master's debtors. No one knows he's been fired. Because he doesn't go to the debtors and say, what do you owe me? What do you owe my master? No, he sends servants to say, go gather up the debtors and bring them to my office. So not even the servants of the master know the steward is fired. Only the master knows and only the steward knows at this point. And so the servants go out and they bring the debtors in. The people who owe rent to the master, to this grand landowner. And they tell him how much, a hundred of this, a hundred of that. And so he begins telling them to slash it and mark it down, write a different number in, make it half, subtract off 20%, lower the amounts, but put it in your handwriting. Put it in your words. I'm not touching it. You, you do it. And of course, these people don't know what's going on. They may think actually that the landowner is just simply lowering their debts out of his own generosity. Maybe it had been a bad, bad year for growing crops. Maybe the rains hadn't come like they were supposed to. Maybe there were a few more bugs and not everyone brought in the harvest that they thought they were going to bring in. And so the master was eating a little bit of the debt that they would owe him by marking it all down. They don't know. And so they just simply do it. They are not aware of the stewards being fired. And so he tells them to quickly change what they owe. And what happens? What do you think would happen with a group of debtors who are suddenly told by the steward of their master, change your debt, lower your debt down. The master's giving you a break here. Or giving the appearance of the master saying he's giving you a break. That little consideration and that little trick that the steward does leads to a grand and glorious celebration. It's not mentioned here in the text, but that's just how it is in the Middle East. When you have a landowner who would remove some of the debt that the people owe him, they would go out in the streets and celebrate. They would have a party. They would be cheering and singing songs to the master, celebrating the work that he is doing and how he is relieving them of the hardships of their debts. They would throw a big party in honor of the master. 
not necessarily in honor of the steward, but focused on what the master is doing, that the grand and glorious landowner has cut our debts in half. And he is being gracious to us. He is being generous. He is a good man. And so that brings us to verse 8. The master has confronted the steward. The steward has been in deep consideration and hatched a plan and accomplished it. And now the people are celebrating the gloriousness of the generosity and the mercy of the manager, of the master. Which brings us to verse 8, what I call the master's ovation. I like to think that when that shrewd manager came into the master's home, bringing the books with him and handing them to him, the master looked out the window. He could hear the people celebrating how the master had slashed their debts and reduced what they owed him. And knowing that the steward had something to do with it, that he just kind of slow clapped him, quietly clapped him. He's like, look at you. Look what you did. He saw the books and he commends him. He commends this act of the manager because it was shrewd. Now, I think we tend to think that shrewdness is a bad thing. But no, shrewdness is just being, I guess you could kind of say, darkly wise, kind of skirting the corners and being really wise about how you're going to do things, thinking clearly in a very difficult and hard situation. But that shrewdness of the steward isn't merely his own wit. As I said, there's a thread and I keep mentioning it, about generosity, about mercifulness. Like I said at the very beginning in that confrontation, the master could have thrown this steward in jail for his mismanagement. But he didn't. He was ready to go ahead and eat the debts that the steward had cost him. To take the financial loss and just send the steward on his way. To get the books back and to send the steward out. In that moment, the steward recognized something that he always knew was there in the master, that there was a generous nature to the master, that there was a generosity there in him and a mercifulness to him. And so the steward went out and that was what he realized. If the master is this generous not to throw me in jail right now, I'm going to figure out a way to take care of myself for the rest of my life to make sure that everyone else in this community is willing to hire me, to work with me, to take care of me. And so he bet everything on the master's generosity and mercifulness. All because when he was fired, he didn't get thrown in jail. He was allowed to go out and finish his work and bring to the master the account books. And so he gets commended by the master for his shrewdness, his wisdom, but not the deceitfulness, not the going around and making it look like the master had approved all of this. But he understood who the master was. He understood that the master was an honorable man who was generous and merciful. So yeah, he could go out and kind of change all the books. But he knew that the master is not going to turn around and be like, the steward was fired, none of this counts, you all still owe me a hundred measures of wheat, a hundred measures of oil, a hundred of this, a hundred of that, you still owe me everything. But he knows that the steward, the master is too generous to do that. That he will again absorb all of the cost on himself that he will forgive, that he will look over what the steward does, look over the fact that he is losing huge amounts of money through the steward's work, even more than the steward's wastefulness. 
but the steward was sensible by betting on the forgiveness of this master. He was a son of darkness, you might say, who recognized the light in the master. The steward was betting on the master, not the people. He knew everything that could have happened to him and none of it did. And so, in a sense, he pressed his advantage. He took advantage of that generosity by <laughs> extending that generosity to everyone else. Because he knew that in extending that generosity, they would thank him, but they would praise the master. And the master would be forced into a corner and have to say, well played, well played. But Jesus goes on to continue talking about this. And he says, and I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, you, so that when it fails they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. That word unrighteous wealth, as we get into Jesus' conclusion about this parable, it's just kind of like our modern day filthy lucre, you know, dirty money. It's not a moral statement, it's just a general statement, a colloquialism regarding wealth, that in general, wealth does lead to bad things. It will lead you away from God if it's used improperly. And so Jesus says, on one hand, these sons of darkness are more shrewd in their dealings than the sons of light. They kind of get how the world works. And deep down, they recognize that there is this component of forgiveness that exists, that it's not all about earning your way all the time, but if you have someone who's already generous, you can press that generosity at the right times and get away with all kinds of stuff because they're only serving one master, which Jesus will bring up at the very end of our section. It all begins to come together with this God and man money, God and mammon. The sons of darkness serve one master, whereas the sons of light get torn because they have recognized their sinfulness. They have recognized that they do tend to worship idols. And so the sons of light find themselves occasionally torn between the true God and the false gods of this world. So hence, the sons of darkness can act shrewdly because they're only serving one person themselves, one master, themselves or some idol or money itself. Whereas the sons of light have seen the darkness within them and are striving toward the good God of light, coming to him through Jesus, receiving his graces, but always failing and always turning a little bit back toward the idolatry that is naturally inclined to their hearts. But he says, let go of that money. Make friends by means of that dirty money. Give it away. Use it for the kingdom. Let it go, which is what the master does. He lets the money go for the sake of being a blessing to everyone else so that when it runs out, you'll be received into eternal dwellings as you use your wealth to increase and enlarge the kingdom of God, those people who go before you will welcome you for your faithfulness. They will welcome you because you are a son of light who was able to be a good steward because nothing we have is ours. That steward had everything in the world because it was the masters, the landowners. He had charge of all of his finances and he was wasteful with it and he was going to get fired. But he knew the generosity of his master and pressed it and took the advantage. He came to his moment of crisis and fell upon the mercy and the generosity of his master. What would we do when we hit our crisis moments? 
What do we do with our wealth? Do we suddenly turn everything back on ourselves and protect ourselves and guard ourselves? Or do we continue depending on the generosity of the master? Do we continue depending on what Jesus has done on our behalf? Because the master in the parable has already absorbed all of the past debt of the steward. He absorbs all the current debt that the steward creates with his own debtors. And he gets commended. The master is willing to take on all those momentary debts from the present and the past. But our master has done far and above beyond that. Absorbing some debts for others is what the master in the parable does. But our greater master absorbs all of our debts. He absorbs our poor stewardship in every way, calling us to a greater stewardship, calling us to a more righteous stewardship, calling us forward in a transformative way of life. But he absorbs everything so that when the moment of crisis comes, we can look and say everything is already dealt with. My past has been washed away. My present has been cleansed. And my future is a bright path for me to walk on in the presence of God himself. The crisis always opens up an opportunity to turn back to the Father, to turn back to the generosity of our Master. Just as the steward had his crisis moment and he depended on the Master, we too must depend upon the Master because things could always be worse. If you let me be cynical for a moment, the crisis could always be worse. The crisis for that steward could have left him in prison forever, trying to pay back the debts that he now owed to the Master. But the master only fired him. The master only slightly disciplined him. And thus he was given an opportunity to find out more and more about the master's mercy and generosity. Likewise, we too have our moments of crisis that are not utterly all-consuming so that we can find our way out into the generosity of our master. And that generosity is always revealed in Christ himself, that we fall on the mercy of Christ. We fall upon the one who has taken everything away from us. Our master takes away all of the debts that we owe, all of our mismanagements, all of our misstewardships, so that we can know his mercy much better. So lean into the master's generosity this day, that as we encounter our crisis moments, as we are confronted with the sin that is in us, as we are brought down low by that sin around us, Look back to the master and his generosity. Be wise in that moment and cry out for mercy. Cry out for the work of Jesus in your life. Cry out for him to draw you to himself because 100% past, present, and future debts have been dealt with in Jesus. And we can take advantage of that mercy now and forever. As the steward took advantage of the master's generosity, we take advantage of what God has done for us by crying out for renewal and mercy and forgiveness in every part of our lives. We can follow our Lord and fall on his generous nature for he is a God who is always generous to his people, who is always merciful to his people when we come to him and rejoice in what he has accomplished already for us. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.